found on the inside of the bulletin. This scripture we continue with Luke. This is Luke 9, 46 through 56. An argument arose among them, this being the disciples, as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. The word of the Lord. Well, I don't know if you caught the news last night. Uh, if you had, you might have seen uh, uh, myself because I was in a parade last night. It was exciting. You remember Ferris Bueller's day off, you know, when he's in the parade? I was in a parade last night. It was the Grand Illumination Parade uh, in Norfolk. Did anyone go to the Grand Illumination Parade? Good heavens, what, what, Uncle Scrooge, am I hanging out with Uncle Scrooge, were you at home? This was exciting, this was turning on the lights in Norfolk, they had, I don't know how many bands there, different cars, fire engines, uh, the ODU band was there, the Norfolk State band, it was just a big uh, brouhaha, televised on Thanksgiving, There, you're waiting for the Thanksgiving, I get it, I understand, well you need to have very keen eyes because I'm in the parade. Okay, it's really exciting. Now, you may ask, what was the part that I had to play? Was it the Grand Marshal or the uh, Grand Poobah with the big water buffalo hat? No, it was not. Uh, you have to look very close because when the Norfolk Christian uh, drum line goes on by in the far, far back, you'll see a guy wheeling a suitcase, okay, with, with uh, one of those hats. And that was me. That was my job. I was the dude that carried the gear in the back. That's right. That's right. That's right. I tell you, it's the second time we did it. Last year, it was fantastic. We, we showed up to support the band. We went and we hung out with the band. And everybody's sort of getting, uh, you know, they start over at Harbor Field. And everybody's in a long line. And, you know, everybody's doing their thing. And, and uh, before we knew it, we're following along with the band that we're, we're on the pavilion. We weren't even paying attention. We're just behind the band and we're all of a sudden we're in the parade. And there's crowds and there's lights. And I tell you, it was fantastic to be a part of the parade. So we did it, uh, last, uh, we did it last night as well. And uh, the energy and the excitement. And I tell you, it was interesting because there's these so many bands from small Christian school to Norfolk State, you know, and they had the Spartan helmets and the full gear, and, you know, I don't even play an instrument. But I got caught up, my son does, 
And uh, one of his buddies, Carter Shank, is here as well. Daniel was dancing and working his mojo in the parade. It was huge. Uh, you started to compare. You know, well, are they better than our band? And do they look better? And do they have? And, you know, I don't know if they were judging or not, but I wasn't even in the thing. And I found myself getting caught up in the comparison game. Who is the greatest? This passage is about the comparison game. It's a game that we all play with one another. A game we play with society. It's even a game that we play with God, isn't it? Who is the greatest? Who gets to be in the inner ring, so to speak? And so they're arguing. What is it that they're arguing about? Who is in that special status, that special position, that special privilege, if you will. And when there's arguing, that means that there's discontent. There's disagreement. There's maybe discouragement as you're pulling out your wares and discovering you don't quite make the grade. The way Jesus responds shows us that the gospel is so much different than religion it's so much different than irreligion. It's something totally different. It's grace. A scandalous grace that does not measure the score based on your accomplishments or on your abilities. But rather on the beauty and love and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so as we read through this story and think about it, I want to, you to put yourself in it. What are the games that I play with God and with religious people? And how are they causing bitterness and discontent in my life? Because Christ came that you might have life and have it to the full. And part of that life and contentment is knowing that you are special to God. That you are somebody to God. And because you're somebody to God, you can then allow yourself to be nobody to man. We're going to look at Three specific points. Number one, God has chosen to make you great. So measure your greatness by God and not by others. God's chosen to make you great. Number two, God has given you a kingdom. So minister for Him rather than for yourself. And finally, number three, the world will never get it. You'll never hear this message and so you have to cling to it and cling to each other by faith, until it is fully realized in the world when Christ comes. Well, let's look at this first point. God has chosen to make you great, so measure your greatness by Him, not by others. So we see that they're arguing here. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Now keep in mind, it's been a great session of ministry. Jesus has sent out the disciples. He's given them His authority. He's given them his power to cast out demons, to perform miracles. So they've stood in the place of Jesus Christ and done things that no man has ever done before. Peter, James, and John just recently were taken with Jesus up to the Mount of Transfiguration where they saw Jesus fully, uh, you know, sort of the veil taken away. Jesus speaking with Moses and Elijah, an unbelievable glorified experience. And so they come back together and as they're walking, they're sort of sharing their props, if you will. Here's who I am. What have you done? Remember when I called down this or did this? It's kind of ironic that they're doing this because 
the sentence that is right before this passage is Jesus saying, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. They're actually walking toward Jerusalem where Jesus is going to be crucified. And yet the next thing they're talking about is who is the greatest. Now it's interesting, this is really not the first time that the disciples talk about this, by the way. It's one of the reasons we know that the scriptures are true. There's so much doubts and embarrassment cast upon the disciples. And their foolishness. They're constantly trying to be first. There is something within the hearts of men that is evil. That we always have to be first. Was it not Lucifer, the one who was beautiful, the one called Satan, where it wasn't enough to be so glorious? He had to be number one. From the beginning of the sinfulness of men, remember Cain and Abel? They both bring a sacrifice. Okay, Abel's is loved, Cain's is not. Cain goes ahead and he kills Abel. What did Abel do wrong? Shouldn't he be mad at God? But rather he kills Abel who did nothing wrong. Why? Because Abel's was better than mine. And if I get rid of Abel, then mine's the best. There's a desire in us to be first. And so everything about glory that Jesus has spoken of, the glory of heaven, the inheritance they hear, but everything about suffering and pain and laying down your life for others seems to just flow right by them. But it says Jesus knowing their hearts. Jesus knows our hearts, our inner thoughts that are behind the words that we're speaking, even if they sound great. Jesus wants to communicate directly to this. And so what does he do? He creates an illustration. He takes a child and he puts him by his side. Now the status of children was basically nothing back then. They weren't permitted to learn the Torah until they were age 12. They, were, they had no status. They had no accomplishment. They had nothing. They were better to be seen and not heard. And so this child who's standing has no title, no name, no accomplishment, no strength. And Jesus puts him by his side and he says, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. This word receive, they would understand within the context of two different ways. Number one, hospitality. Hospitality was sacred in the ancient Near East. When somebody came, you would receive them, right? And you had to be hospitable to friends, to family, but there was a hierarchy same hierarchy that we do, right? Somebody based on their status. Queen of England stopped by your house and wanted to go ahead and have tea with you. I reckon some of you would be very excited. You would receive her in such a way befitting her station. Additionally, the other way that they would understand this is someone of importance who sends an emissary, an ambassador. A king sends their ambassador you're supposed to receive the ambassador as receiving the king. Because the ambassador comes in the king's name. And so what Jesus is saying is, do you see this little child that has no status? 
I'm taking my name, my greatness, and my glory, and I am transferring it to them. So now they are the highest. This child who is the lowest, who hasn't done anything yet, becomes the greatest. Simply by the fact that Jesus has given freely his name to the child. For the least among you is the one who is great. Notice Jesus is the least among you. He's talking to the disciples. You twelve, the least who is among you. You know the one that's losing the argument right now that you guys are having whispering in the back? You are great. And I love that he says, he doesn't say greatest. The NIV translates it that way. And it's the right translation in the right context. But it's not talking greatest by comparison. It's talking about great. The greatest simply by the value of the one who gave it. Because greatness is bestowed. Greatness can be pursued and possessed, but not by comparison to Jesus Christ. Jesus is prohibiting comparison. In fact, if you look at all the times that Jesus is speaking about greatness, he's not, he never uses the word greater. There is greatness in the kingdom. And there is leastness in the kingdom. But he's saying essentially this. That all people have value. Now I'm speaking not just of Christians, but of people in general. All people have value. From the richest to the poorest. The black, the Hispanic, the Asian, the Chinese. The one who loves God, the one who hates God. They all have value. Why? Because God made them. And they're in God's image. They're still in God's image. And so God has imputed value to every single person. And every single person has value by uh, the reason of the value that Jesus Christ has given them. As such, we should treat them in that way. When you see the person in the supermarket, when the person helps you at the gas station, the person that you vehemently disagree with on the political aisle, your boss, every single person has value. Why? Because God has given His image upon them. But His people have a super value in the sense that He's given them sonship and daughtership. You're more than simply in my image, you're my child. Jesus is taking this child that has no status and saying, you're as me. And you have value. So disciples, every single one of you, the least among you, is great. Because I give you my greatness. I give you my title. I give you my identity. So stop playing the comparison game with one another. Because greatness is bestowed by me, not attained. If we want to live this life in Christ, the life of the kingdom, we have to stop valuing ourselves and others by their accomplishments. This church has to function in a different way. We have to stop keeping score of our church compared to the church down the street. How are we doing? Sometimes that's the way people evaluate their church and go to a church. 
Ah, worship's okay. Pastor, a great message. This, this, this. I'm looking for something else. I'm going to go somewhere else. It's not the way the kingdom of God works. You've got to stop valuing yourself by your accomplishments. Well, I'm 50. This is where I should be in my company. I'm here. There is a change that had to happen. And so I'm here. Guess what? My life is a failure. I don't haven't accomplished what I'm supposed to. Feeling pretty good. And then I look at somebody else and all of a sudden I'm, I'm keeping a scorecard of my value based on what the world is telling me. We've got to stop valuing the church by accomplishments, ourselves by our accomplishments, and we have to stop valuing ourselves uh, by comparison. I was in the mall yesterday helping my kids get some clothes and we went to some of those hip and trendy uh, skate shop type places. You know, the places that I go when I really want to get decked out, you know, to sort of, you know, work my mojo on the streets and in the band uh, performing, things like that. You know, by the end of the thing, I literally felt like I need to get out of here and I need to take a shower. Because the way it was depicting women in these stores, essentially, your value woman is based on how sexual you can be. How pretty you can be. And not pretty in a beautiful way. How seductive you can be. And it was out there in front of me. And I thought to myself, you know what? They are treating and the world treats you women like you are a thing. And if you don't play the game, you don't have any value. Girls, let me just tell you, that is detestable in God's sight. And an utter lie. You are beautiful because God made you. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a daughter of God. And your value is not based on that. So don't play that game. And guys, don't play that game. It's insulting to God and it's insulting to women. So we have to live by the greatness that God bestows. Not the greatness we obtain because it will never be enough. You'll never make it into the inner circle. One of the great things about the parade, you know this? It was wonderful. What was I doing in the parade? I was, I was wheeling luggage. I was wheeling the bandmaster's luggage. But for some reason, I'm in the parade. I'm not playing an instrument. I'm not doing anything cool. But I'm in the parade. And you know why I'm in the parade? Because I'm with them. And they're with me. And by virtue of the fact that I'm with them... I share in their glory and I get to enjoy it. It's not mine. But I'm there and I'm with them and so I get to enjoy the glory that's bestowed upon them simply because I'm with them. See, that's the beauty of the gospel. God bestows His glory upon me not because I have it all together but because Christ has it all together. Isn't that much better than life by my own accomplishments? Because I will always lose when I turn and I look at Norfolk State and ODU and somebody else. I'll always be playing the game. I never can enjoy the concert because I always play the world's game of trying to one-up. But rather when I receive the glory that's simply given by virtue of relationship, I can enjoy what's been given to me. So my question for you is this. What makes you... A nobody, somebody. 
you really get down to your heart of hearts, when Jesus, looking at their hearts, saw it, what is it? What's the list that's in your head? It's my profession. It's my body. It's my beauty. It's my wit. Well, you may have assets and abilities and gifts. And you know what? Those are gifts from God. And they're a blessing. But if you value yourself by them, you get everything that comes with it. And every last asset has a liability. Because your beauty will fade. Your body will age. You will one day retire. And the next week, people will not even remember you at the office. But if your greatness comes from God, then there is no fear. Because God is the ultimate arbiter of glory. And he gives it to you freely. For the least among you, my children, is great. So be a child. Let Jesus bring you to his side. Shed your status. Shed your gifts and abilities. Hold on to them, but not tightly. Rather receive the blessing that comes from the glory of God rather than the adulation, the glory of man. This brings me to my second point. Because God has chosen to make me great, I can measure my greatness by Him. But number two, I don't have to build my own kingdom for He's already given me one. So I can minister for Him, not for others. Listen what uh, John answers here. This is verse, verse 49. It's interesting, John answered. Jesus gives this statement, John answered. John's testing this, by the way. He's probing. He says, well, Master, what about this? We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. How should we receive him? This person, disciples are walking along, they see someone, and this person has power. In fact, he's doing the very things that Jesus gave them authority to do. He's casting out demons... In Jesus' name. Okay, now the truth of the matter is the only way that is happening is if God is giving them the power to do it. Okay, the Spirit is working in this person's life. He's doing it correctly. But what John is saying, there's only one problem with this situation. This is why we're trying to stop him because he's not following with us. It's not one of the twelve. It's not part of the inner ring, so to speak. Why are the disciples really trying to stop him? His message is orthodox. It's firmly Christian. It's firmly Christ glorifying. They're doing the same mission. The mission is the kingdom has come. Go and make disciples. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. This guy's doing all that. It's furthering the kingdom. But it's not furthering theirs. You catch that? It's furthering the kingdom. But we tried to stop him because he was not following with us. It's weakening their exclusive position. But Jesus said, don't stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. See, there's so much about Christianity that really at the end of the day, it's about building our kingdom. See, there's only one way that Jesus' statement is true. Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. 
If this thing is really about God's kingdom, then Jesus' statement, that's, that's true. But if it's about the kingdom of disciples, that is false. Because he who's not against you is for you. Well, he's for you if he's for God in our mission. But he's not for you as being the twelve. The greatest test of ministry often comes with success. But one of the questions we should always be asking is, who is this really for? It is the weakness of the American church today, by the way. All church architecture in the old days, and these churches still do it, always put the cross at the top. Why did they do that? Because it was the pinnacle. It was the highest. The point was to raise high the cross of Jesus Christ. A lot of places they don't do that anymore. Now, this isn't about architecture, but I think that there may be some truth to the question, who is the American church lifting up? Is it about Christ? Or is it about us? Is what we're doing every day, 24-7 here at Redeemer and on Sunday, is it for the Lord? Or is it for our prestige? Our reputation? Our comfort? Yes, we have the veneer of it. But are we really lifting up Jesus Christ? We have to have a gut check for our church, my friends. There's a reason that the number one value we have listed under our values in our, in our bulletin is this. It's humility. Humility is the antithesis of the comparison game. One of our ministry principles is that other ministries are more important than my own. Are my talents and my gifts for my reputation or for his? Is my ministry threatened when another ministry comes along and takes my time and my slots and my people? Or are we celebrating what God is doing? I'm not sure that I'll ever leave and go to another church that's already established. And you know why? Because I'm going to go to another church and there are some ministries in that church, God forbid, that anyone mess with, much less the pastor. They're sacred, if you will. So there can be a party spirit. We all battle with it. Even the ancient church, even the disciples... A party spirit. But Jesus says, let him do it. Do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. In Mark 9.40, a parallel translation of this, I love it. It says, for the one who is not against us is for us. Notice what Jesus has done. The disciples say they're not following with us, meaning the twelve. But Jesus says, for the one who is not against us is for us. He includes himself. Jesus changes us. Jesus is the king. And yet Jesus leads the kingdom for another. Jesus is the 13th disciple, if you will. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 24. At the end of all things, the end will come when he hands over the kingdom, Jesus, to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. 
And when he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. See, Jesus Christ, the Son of God's value, does not even come from accomplishment or position. Rather, from the Father who bestows glory on him from the foundation of all time. He is the eternal Son, forever glorified, equal in glory and status, subservient in role to the Father. It's Jesus' kingdom because it is the Father's and He is the Son. And the Son delights in doing the will of the Father and ultimately will give the kingdom, once He has vanquished all enemies, back to the Father. And so Jesus isn't threatened. Jesus isn't bothered when people reject Him. He's angered for His Father. The one who's not against us is for us. And Christ, by His humility, has made a name for us. And we get the privilege of joining in this ministry with the Twelve and with Him to make a name for Him and His Father. God, my friends, has given us a central mission to lift high the cross. A central method to put others before me. To not have rivalry. A central spirit to celebrate what God is doing and will do. And a central drive. My hope is that we're never content here at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. The church can never be content because the mission is not accomplished. We have been given not a, simply a mission, but a commission. Any military folks here? Okay, some of you, if you're a military person, you know what happens when you receive a commission, right? An authority, a title for a purpose. We've been given God's commission. God has conferred on you a kingdom. I don't know if you know the story of Robert Moffat. He was a missionary uh, in uh, South Africa, in Africa. Actually, the, uh, the northern part of South Africa. This was back in the day, 1816. When Robert Moffat applied to the London Missionary Society, his application was accepted. And so he went. And the pioneer missionary work was unusually trying. Nine years passed without any visible results. He's about 300 miles north of South Africa. It says there was, he was in a village once and an African chief threatened the use of violence if the missionaries did not leave his village at once. Moffat, drawing, drawing himself to his full height, answered, If you are resolved to rid yourselves of us, you must resort to stronger measures, for our hearts are with you. You may shed blood or burn us out. Then shall they who sent us and know and God who now sees and hears what we do shall know that we have been persecuted indeed. Looking around at his companions, the chief shook his head and said, These men must have ten lives since they are so fearless of death. There must be something in immortality in them. And with those words, the angry crowd dispersed, leaving the Moffats to continue their ministry of love. God has given them his title. 
God gave him a kingdom. And there was a drive and a passion to lift up the reputation of Jesus Christ. A reputation by showing the gospel. Moffat, one of his daughters, married the famous David Livingston. And Livingston was so moved by Moffat when he spoke, he asked Moffat, is there a place for me in Africa? And he said, yes, if you go to the outlying stations. For in the morning sun I have seen the fires of 10,000 villages of people who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ spoken. And a passion was stirred in Livingston's heart and he went to preach. It's his kingdom that's coming to fruition. And you're inheritor of it. Don't worry about your kingdom. You've already received one. I don't know if you're ever going to end up in Africa. I think a much harder village to reach is the one that's right across the street from you. People are over-churched and under-gospeled here. They've heard something of Jesus Christ, but they haven't heard the gospel. Are we content as a church with the little kingdom that we've built? Or is there a passion and a desire to see the name of Jesus Christ lifted up? That's the challenge that's in my heart today. This brings me to my final point. People are never, ever going to get it. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die on a cross. Send some people to the Samaritans because they've got to go through Samaria to get there. If you don't know anything about the Samaritans, they're considered half-breeds by the pure Jews. 900 years before when the kingdom of Israel split, Jeroboam said uh, to the Samaritans, he set up two new golden calves at Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim and said, you don't have to go to Jerusalem anymore. This is where God is. And so Jesus is going, and they've heard of him, I'm sure. But they won't receive him because he's going to Jerusalem. And he's not going to the particular gods that they've set up. So what do the disciples say? Let's call down fire and destroy them. Because they don't recognize you. But Jesus rebukes them. Jesus is going to die on a cross. And some of the people that he is going to die for, who are his children, are Samaritans. We don't need to defend Jesus Christ's reputation. Because he is the king, whether people say he is or not. And all will be shown in the end. Rather, we need to take up his commission. Love your neighbor as yourself. Go and make disciples of all nations. How do we see unbelievers? Oh, they don't get it. We need to call down fire upon them. Or do we mourn for them? But one thing's for sure. They're never going to understand the source of our greatness. And they will deride it. And they will demean it. And they will dissuade you from believing in it. And so the question is, where does your greatness come from? It's in the time of testing where we need one another and we need this pulpit and we need the hope of the gospel. Measure your greatness by Him, not by others. And you'll live with freedom. 
Minister for Him. Not for yourself. Because your kingdom is safe. And there's nothing more glorious than being able to set down your house of cards kingdom and be a small part, maybe the guy in the back of a kingdom that's advancing. And don't listen to the world. But rather by your life and by your love and by your belief by Robert Moffat. Let the gospel be preached in such a way that they cannot stand up to your words because they see your life and they can't make any sense of it. But they know surely there is something immortal in this person. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so like the disciples. When I take my eyes off you, I want to be first. I want to be best. I want to rely on my record. Lord, but you show with this little child, the least among you, that I give my name and my greatness and my glory is great. The greatest. Lord, you stoop to make me great. And so, Lord, let me rest by your side. Lord, give me a passion for your kingdom now that I no longer have to build mine. And I can play some role in this beautiful kingdom that you're creating, built on love, unstoppable, invincible. Um, Lord, that will surely come to fruition. And Lord, let the life and the love that we lead as Redeemer Presbyterian be so transforming that the world, even when it speaks against it, cannot understand it and has to acknowledge that surely there is something immortal among them. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.